Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Kevin Cruz here, coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the 215, the home of the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, you Laker fans, don't be hating on me. We beat you last night on a last-second Tobias Harris jump shot. Sometimes he's on, sometimes he's not, but last night he was on. So, I'm not just excited about basketball. I'm super excited for this episode. It's not every day that you can pick the brain of the founder and CEO of a billion-dollar publicly traded company. And not just one of those billion-dollar unicorns that's valued at a billion dollars. His company's actually selling a billion dollars worth of stuff. A tech unicorn CEO, we talk about why they don't have all those Silicon Valley perks, all those crazy giveaways. Why don't they pay bonuses? How does he use the hero's journey storytelling technique to recruit amazing talent at lower salaries than they could get at Google and Facebook and other places, by the way? But before I get to that, Remember, the LeadX platform enables companies and teams to scale leadership behaviors and to cascade your culture throughout your entire organization. It does this with assessments, behavioral nudges, micro-coaching, and more. It can be configured to work with your own competency model and the assessments you already have in place. So whether you have a 100-person company or a 50,000-person company, LeadX is the right leadership development platform for you. My guest today, he's the co-founder and CEO of Twilio, a San Francisco tech startup that is doing over a billion dollars of revenue. Did I mention that they were founded in 2008? That makes them one of the fastest growing tech companies of the last decade. He's here to talk about his new book, Ask Your Developer, How to Harness the Power of Software Developers and Win in the 21st Century. Our guest is Jeff Lawson. Well, Jeff, officially welcome to the LeadX Leadership Show. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here. Just to start out, in the pre-roll, I gave your background and a little bit about Twilio, but for, I mean, anyone who's in tech knows of you, of course, but for my listeners who don't really have a tech background, in plain language, what does your company do? Well, we're Twilio. We're a cloud platform that enables companies to build amazing customer engagement through better communications. Our platform is APIs, we're building blocks that software developers use to infuse great communications into all the different applications that companies have, whether it's the app your customers use on a mobile phone, whether it's your web application, or whether it's your marketing or your customer service. At the center of all of that, the way you build great connection with your customers is with communications. And Twilio lets some of the best companies in the world build amazing and differentiated customer engagement across all those different touch points. That's fantastic. And why, like in 2020, which was such a tough year for some businesses, for most people, it was a great year for your company. Why was that? Well, you know, if you look at the things that Twilio does, we really offer our customers three things. First, digital engagement, digital communications, right? So phone calls, text messaging, video, chat, email, and the world has needed digital engagement more than ever because as face-to-face -face interactions turned into digital ones, whether it was you know, e-commerce with curbside pickup or delivery notifications when your food is arriving, 
or customer support where your agents can work from home instead of sitting in the building or telemedicine. Like these are all things that humanity used to do in person that now had to go virtual and that requires digital communication. So that's the first thing that we do. The second thing we do, because we're a software platform, we run in the cloud and we're APIs, we enable agility because we enable builders to see problems that are emerging and build the answers to them. And if you think about the global pandemic, so many challenges arose in society where companies, and you can argue society as a whole, had to reconfigure practically overnight to adapt to the changing world. And adaptability, like that's the nature of agility. And Twilio's powered that for our customers who have always valued adaptability and agility because business today really requires that. The pandemic required it even more. And the third thing Twilio offers is cloud scale. The ability to build something, you know, hit go and have it just work. Have it work everywhere in the world. Have it work at any scale. First with dozens of users while you're testing to millions or billions of users when you hit scale. It just works. And that's the power of the cloud. And so these three things, digital customer engagement, software agility, and cloud scale are the things we've always offered our customers that business has really driven for most companies. And now the pandemic companies have needed that even more. It's incredible. It's too bad all this transformation had to come with so much bad stuff, but it felt like we took 10 years, the next 10 years and shrank it into one for a lot of organizations. Yeah. You know, people have talked about digital transformation forever. This is the great digital acceleration. And I think that acceleration is permanent, right? We are going to continually have an accelerated environment where digital takes on an even more urgent importance for nearly every industry and nearly every company. And we're going to get more specifically into your book, Ask Your Developer, How to Harness the Power of Software Developers and Win in the 21st Century. But I always like to start with my selfish personal questions. And I couldn't help but notice somewhere in your bio, it said you were actually a dual major, computer science, which I would have guessed, and then film and video. What's up with the film and video angle? You know, early in my life when I was in high school and in college, you know, I thought I really wanted to enter the field of film because, you know, I started college in 1995 and it was coming right off the heels of Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park and all of these moments where it seemed like, oh my, and Toy Story, right? Like, computers and film are merging together. And I've always loved storytelling, especially visual storytelling. And I thought that the field I wanted to go into was the intersection of film and computer science, which was just blowing up at the time. And while I still love those things, the bug that I got, because you think about the other thing that was happening right around that time was the internet. Yeah. And with the internet, you could suddenly build something in software And instead of it just being like, okay, I built a thing. Now what? I got to get shelf space at CompUSA or whatever. Like, how am I going to go do that? With the internet, you could build something, you know, write code, put it on the internet and suddenly millions and then pretty soon billions of people could actually use the thing that you built if you built the right thing. And so the question just became like, if you could build anything and have an audience of millions or billions of people overnight, what could you build? And it just seems like, you know, the world is your oyster when that's the purview. And so that pulled me in the direction of entrepreneurship and using software as a way of building for customers and building value and finding valuable problems that the world needs solved and using the internet and software as a way to solve those problems. And that notion of creation, where a person can sit at a computer and type code into a text editor and suddenly change the life of billions of people. I mean, that scale of human creation has never existed before in the history of the world. That opportunity is really what took me out of the world of 
film and into the world of entrepreneurship and building things at internet scale. And you talk about in your book in a few different angles that, you know, coding, uh, engineering, it's a lot more creative than math. And you just said one of my favorite terms, storytelling, right? I'm a huge fan of, of, of storytelling, the power of storytelling. And yet, even though I geek out on that, I hit myself in the head with your book when, when I'm like, oh, he's so right. You talk about the power of like hero's journey in recruiting, which I hadn't thought about before. Tell me about that. You know, people often ask me, you know, especially if they're like, say, an incumbent in an industry, you know, a large enterprise. And, you know, they say, you know, we really want to become great builders of software because we recognize that all the companies who are really winning in this digital economy are not the ones who are just buying off the shelf software or, or sitting on the sidelines and not investing in software. They're the companies who recognize that you have to build software. You have to listen to your customers. You have to hear their problems and then say, great, that's our roadmap and go build the answer to your customers' problems. And in this digital world, those are the companies who ultimately win the hearts, minds, and wallets of their customers. So in order to do that, you need to hire some great software talent, you need to hire a great technical team, and then you need to unleash their creativity. But what I hear from, especially like enterprises and sometimes even startups is like, how do I recruit great technical talent? Because like, I'm not Google, I'm not Facebook, I'm not Amazon, the places you typically think of where they pay really well. And you know, it's like this collective of great technical talent. You're like, how do I compete with that? And my answer is, look, you know, yes, those companies pay really well and there is no lure to go there. It's a great place to work if you're a developer. But the thing is, you're going to be one of, you know, if you're a software developer and you go to one of those companies, like, great, you're going to be one of, you know, 100,000 developers and you're going to own some tiny, minuscule part of that company's success. But if you go to, you know, your company, you can truly change the trajectory of the company. And you know, I tell the story, you know, it's, it's a big, big fish in a small pond story. And you know, I tell the story in the book of Domino's Pizza. And Domino's Pizza is this sleeper success story. Like, I don't know if, if everyone's realized this, but Domino's Pizza's stock over the last decade has outperformed like Google and Facebook and Amazon. It's great. Maybe not Amazon. I'm pretty sure though. Um, it's like this amazing success story, total turnaround. And what's behind that turnaround is the fact that Domino's has become a tech company. And you think about it, like you've heard about the pizza tracker, you get to see your pizza on a map and you get to order, you can order pizzas via Alexa, via text message, via mobile app, via all these new channels. Domino's has become a tech company. And the way they did that is the CEO, Patrick Doyle, about a decade ago, realized that they had to basically pivot from being a pizza company to being a technology company because they saw, you know, all these new delivery services popping up who would deliver you basically from any restaurant. He's like, well, if I want to win in this world where you can get anything delivered, we have to be as good or better than all the other things that you could get delivered. And we have to be tech enabled to do that. And so he went to go hire a technology leader. And, you know, at the time they had a very like IT centric organization, you know, the typical you know, they're going to take care of the laptops for the employees and make sure the printers had paper in them and, you know, manage the, the financials and the back office, like that software system. And they needed to transform into an organization that would serve customers, realizing that the interface they now had with their customers was a digital one. The future would be mobile apps and great web experience and even these other channels like Alexa or whatever else. And so he recruited this guy, Kevin, to be the CTO and to lead that transformation. And the way he did that you know, Kevin took the interview and what he told me was, you know, I initially went in and, you know, really wasn't thinking that I was going to take the job at a pizza company. 
but I, you know, I took the interview almost as a favor, right? And Patrick Doyle's pitch was fantastic. He basically said, look, you know, we need to transform this whole company to become a technology company. And I want you to lead that transformation. And literally the future of our company depends on your success. Think about that pitch. Like think <laughs> about that hero's journey, if you will, right? Putting the technical leader at the center of the company's future success and showing that technical leader that you're trying to recruit how important, you know, how life or death, how existential this is for the organization and how you will be an incredibly important part, this big fish in the small pond that is Domino's. And you compare that to like, you know, the role you could play if you went to some other tech giant where you're just like one of many. That's a really compelling proposition. You know, I also tell the story of how Barack Obama recruited amazing technical talent into the federal government. And like, it's hard to imagine a bureaucracy worse, like a place where a developer would feel like they're going to do the best work of their lives. It's hard to imagine an environment worse than the federal government. But Barack Obama did this amazing job. My co-founder at Twilio, Evan, who had recently left Twilio, this is about 2014, was wondering what he was going to do next. And he got this email from someone with a whitehouse.gov email address that said, hey, Evan, are you free to take a meeting next week? And he said, uh, well, you know, I don't know, but you've got a whitehouse.gov email address. <laughs> Seems like maybe I should do it. So he's like, uh, sure. So he shows up at the appointed time and place. It's a hotel here in San Francisco. And, you know, there's all this security, you know, the metal detectors and you do the background check and all this kind of stuff. And he takes the elevator up. He's sitting in this suite at the top of the hotel with four other developers. And they're all like, why are we here? And none of them knew. Suddenly they hear the foop, foop, foop of a helicopter flying by and it's Marine One. And then five minutes later, the door opens and who's there but Barack Obama. And he says, look, you know, he had just come off of healthcare.gov, which is, you know, Obama had passed his signature legislation, expended so much political capital to get healthcare for all, only to see that whole vision potentially collapse because the website didn't work. Can you believe that? And so he came into the room and he said, look, it's obvious the federal government needs to be as good at building software as you all are in Silicon Valley. And your peers have said, you are some of the best and brightest. And I want you to come join the U.S. government, be the founding members of the U.S. Digital Service, and help modernize how the federal government and how our country uses software to serve all of our, you know, 400 million citizens. Give me one reason why you can't take the job. <laughs> the great closer, right? Think about that pitch. Save your country, right? Yeah. Do a tour of service. And if you think about what leaders, you know, if you're serious, about becoming great at technology, becoming great builders of software, that's the pitch that speaks so much louder than I can be one of 100,000 developers at some other big tech company. And going just a little bit deeper into this, so, you know, LeadX is all about employee engagement and culture. And this is great. You know, you've talked about, you know, people didn't join the government service for a paycheck, right? It was about purpose. And I was struck that, you know, you're in the middle of, you know, Silicon Valley culture is like legendary for the, the beer, the parties, the, the scooters, whatever it is, right? All those perks. You guys are a little bit light on that. Why is that? You know, actually, I read a book very early on in, in my building of Twilio, which was Daniel Pink's book, Drive. And what he said in that book really resonated with me. And he said, you know, first of all, compensation is really there. Obviously, people need compensation to live, you know, but like once you reach the point of fairness where people feel they're compensated fairly, you know, fairly relative to their peers, fairly relative to if they worked at another company. But once you reach that point of fairness, you've done your job with your compensation strategy. What you really want then people to do is to show up to work every day because of three things that aren't compensation, autonomy, 
mastery, and purpose. And those are the three things that give people a sense of satisfaction for what they do every day. So autonomy is, am I trusted? Can I make decisions? Do I have an ability to affect the future? Mastery, am I getting better at my chosen career, my chosen craft every day? Am I learning? And then purpose, am I having impact? Is the work I'm doing changing something for the better? And if you can unlock autonomy, mastery, and purpose for folks, especially in creative fields, that's where you get the intrinsic motivation in employees. That's where you get that desire to do your best work because it's just inside you to want to do that versus extrinsic motivation. Well, if I do this, I'll, I'll get a bonus or something like that. So I've always sought to do that, to have people show up and work at Twilio because they want to work at Twilio, because they love the team they get to work with, the customers they get to serve, and the problems they get to solve. And if you think about all those perks, those are a distraction from those things. You know, there's one company I talk about in the book, I won't name names, but it's a prominent Silicon Valley company where the first time I went to their headquarters, they gave me a tour and they said, oh, and here's where we've got 12 locally brewed beers on tap. And they showed me the taps. They were very proud of the beer taps. And I like, you know, I kind of took note of that. I'm like, oh, it's really interesting. But what happens when, you know, the startup next door has 13 beers on tap, right? You know, you're kind of screwed. I don't want people showing up for work every day because they think the beers are great or because of the tricycles or, you know, the free haircuts or whatever. I want people showing up to work because they love the work. And in some ways, by not trying to win the perk war very intentionally, in fact, I've said that inside of Toledo before, we are not trying to win the perk war. You actually sort for the employees who want to show up for the right purpose. And look, there are employees who, you know, really the perks are meaningful and they like that, which is great. Then there's other companies they can go to. But for the employees who really want to work at a company because they love the work, they love the team and they love the customers, and they love the problems, then I want those employees showing up at Twilio for those reasons. And so it sort of helps you to sort through what the motivations are of everyone who decides what company they're going to join. Yeah, it makes all the world of sense, making sure people are there for the right reason. You talk about sort of organizational structure, maximizing team productivity. In fact, I was just talking to my friend Tracy about this as she's reorganizing their company and probably going to that classic matrix. I think you call it two in a box, you know, leadership where someone kind of is on a team, but is also part of a function. And, you know, you're saying there's some problems with the classic, you know, cascading objectives. There's some challenges with that two in the box. What's the downside to that? And what's the potential solution? Well, you know, I'll talk about this in terms of small teams and single threaded leaders, because that's how we organize Twilio. Twilio is, we're about 4,500 employees, but everybody is organized into teams of, give or take, no more than 10 people, led by a person who is what we would call a single-threaded leader. They wake up every day to lead that team. And the teams are defined by three things, a customer they serve, a mission for what they're solving for that customer, and then the metrics that tell them and us whether or not they're succeeding in that mission. And the reason is because that helps you capture that entrepreneurial startup spirit, even as the company grows bigger. And the reason why we do this came from a conversation that I had many years ago in the early days of Twilio with a friend of mine. My friend's name was Dave Chappelle, not the comedian, different Dave Chappelle. And Dave was the guy who actually hired me at Amazon. So we haven't talked about this, but I was one of the early product managers at Amazon Web Services. So I joined Amazon in 2004. Dave is the guy who hired me. Dave had joined Amazon when the company was about 100 people. I think it was 1997. And Dave left actually shortly after I joined. And when he left, Amazon was about 5,000 employees. 
he went and started a, did a startup that later got acquired back by Amazon. So he found himself back in Amazon several years later. And by that point, Amazon was about 70,000 employees. And as I started growing Twilio and like trying to decide how I wanted to grow it, how I wanted to structure it and some of the you know, core principles we were going to use, I thought, wow, what an interesting person. Because Dave has seen this company, Amazon, at 100 people, at 5,000 people, and now at 70,000 people. So I called him up one day and I said, Dave, can you compare and contrast those three companies, those three versions of Amazon that you've experienced for me? And he said, huh, really interesting. You know, I've never thought about that before. And he thought about it for a minute and he said, you know what? It's exactly the same company, the same bounce in people's step, the same sense of urgency, the same intellect in the people I get to work with every day. In fact, you know, when I first started, there was a hundred people. And now you would have no idea that there's just you know, 700 more floors of 100 people all around the world because I feel like it's that same startup. And that is astounding. Because, you know, most companies, as they get bigger, what happens? They slow down, they get more bureaucratic, they get more political, and that drive just kind of fades because you just feel like you're a cog in the machine. But instead, at companies that organize into small teams, and Amazon is famous for their two pizza teams, Companies that organize into small teams essentially are continually recreating the environment of a startup. And what you need to do is you just keep dividing the problem domain of the company into pieces that can be tackled and owned end to end by one of these small teams. And when you do that, you get a bunch of benefits. First of all, everyone on that small team feels like they're important. You know, low performers can't hide in a team of 10 people. A team of 100 people, someone can be checked out and go for a long period of time with no one noticing. But 10 people, it's like everyone's got to be rowing. Second, with a single-threaded leader who's very close to that team, you know, part of that 10-person team, like the decisions are made locally. You know, it's not like, oh, some bozo far away in the org chart made some decision, now we have to implement it. You're like, well, this is stupid. You're like, no, 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 it's my, my manager made this decision. Let me go talk to him. And chances are, as a small team, you are all involved in the decision too. You're probably consulted, you know, and you were involved in that. And you're bought in. And then third is you can really maintain that proximity to customers. Because look, you got a small team, you're there to serve a customer instead of it being just this amorphous, you know, oh yeah, customers are somewhere out there. We just, have, we just write some software. The small team acts with urgency because they know the customer they're serving, they know the problem they're solving, and they know they're measured by their success. We're um, talking here, of course, in January of 2021. And you know, in 2020, um, you know, most organizations in response to the pandemic said, okay, you know, people can work remotely, can work from home. And I'm getting a lot of questions from CEOs of companies of all sizes. Now we're moving into 2021. We see the light at the end of the tunnel and people are facing, do you ask people to come back to work? Yes or no? Or is it a flex program? One. And two, what's the right balance between focusing on, hey, we still have our objectives to hit. We still have to hit our numbers. We're growing like crazy. We've got problems to solve. And at the same time, we're trying to be empathetic. We're trying to be understanding that a lot of people have little kids running around at home or, or whatever it is. So what would be your advice? You know, I'm curious about in Twilio, are you bringing people back to the office or not? What's your advice to managers about, one, holding people accountable for their jobs, but also being empathetic at the same time? You know, I think there's two concepts that are intertwined there that I'm going to untangle for a second. One is the notion of can people do their jobs and hit their objectives while working remotely, working from home, et cetera. Number two, 
is how do you manage people during, you know, a generational global pandemic? Okay, so I'm going to start with the second one. How do you manage people during a pandemic? Clearly, this is not business as usual, both in terms of the change to people's lives. They have to work from home, but guess what? The kids also are doing school from home, people having to become educators in addition to employees at the same time. I mean, that's unprecedented in modern times. And the way we've thought about that is, look, we have to meet employees where they are because during 2020, everybody was struggling with something. You know, if you have a family, you're struggling with how to keep your kids, you know, in some semblance of, of school and education. If you're single, you know, you're probably lonely. You know, if you live with roommates, you are probably ready to kill your roommates, you know, being trapped in the house with them all day. If you're an introvert, people would say, oh, like, that's great. But you might be trapped in your house with a bunch of people who want to talk to you all day. If you're an extrovert, you're missing all the human interaction that you get power from. Like every person struggled in 2020. And so the advice we gave to our managers was you really need to be listeners and you need to moderate the workloads. You need to hear where people are and you have permission to moderate the workloads because what we want to do is our priority number one during the pandemic was to serve our employees and take care of our employees during this once in a lifetime event. And if we do that well, even if there's some short-term objectives that may get sacrificed, we believe that our employees' health and safety is the most important thing, and we will be repaid in the fullness of time by taking care of our employees. And I think that's largely been true. The second item that you brought up, though, is what about do you need to return to work? Do you need to go back to the office, all that? And to that, I'd have a very different answer. I think that cultures can work in a lot of different ways. There are some companies who are fully remote. There are some companies that are fully in the office, and there's success stories on both sides of that. So I don't think there's any one way you can run a company, especially with modern technology that we've all been using uh, all day, every day. There are a lot of ways to build a company. And so I think what 2020 and the pandemic has shown us is that even for folks who thought they had to have an office environment, an office culture, many of them probably found that maybe that's not strictly necessary. There's a lot of employees who might be thriving actually working from home. There's a lot of employees who might be happier because they actually moved to somewhere that's further away from the office they used to have to go to and they're happier in life. And so what we are telling our teams is we need to not be prepared for everyone working remotely or everyone working in the office. We need to prepare for what we call open work, which is a more flexible, agile environment where some people are going to work five days a week in the office. Some people are going to be permanently remote. And a whole lot of people are probably going to work three days a week from the office and maybe two days from home. And I think what this opens up is the opportunity for the environment to be more tailored to the needs of the employee. And I think the companies that do that well are going to be the ones who hire and retain talent really well, because there are so many new possibilities that I think got opened up because of the pandemic that wouldn't have otherwise, just because of the momentum that most companies were on or that sense that, oh, yeah, the office is really important. That in fact, now we've realized, actually, we can probably be more flexible in a lot of those things and employees will appreciate that. And they're going to go to companies who fit in with their work styles and the things that are working for them. And so one of the benefits of small teams, like I talked about a few minutes ago, is that we can enable our small teams to decide what works for them. Some of our teams may realize that they work best in the office environment. Other teams may realize that they work best remotely. And then employees, you know, by allowing teams to make that decision at the team level, then employees can decide, great, like I, I want to work on one of those teams that's the office teams. I want to work on one of those teams that's remote teams and actually provide a lot of ability for employees to switch teams 
to fit into a team whose working style works for their life as it has changed because of the pandemic. And so I think having an all or nothing approach as a company won't necessarily be the path to success, but rather one where you allow at the team level them to decide what works best for them and then provide many opportunities for your employees inside of the company to find the team that suits their desires, their working style, their personal life circumstances, et cetera. And I think that's the kind of company where you can actually have the best talent doing their best work because it's not all or nothing. Jeff, with the couple of minutes that we have left, I want to um, shift back to one of my, my selfish questions, and it's around goal setting. I've kind of evolved in my thing. I've, I have an unpublished book about goal setting, and I never released it because I had sort of a change of heart. Up until age 40, I was all about goals, smart goals, and they served me well. You know, I got the goals I had set. But I had sort of an awakening that while I had goals, they also had me. You know, like until you've achieved the goal, you're always a bit less than, you're always striving. And it's powerful, but it's not always the best way to optimize happiness. And so more recent years, uh, more recent decade, I've been thinking more about habits and systems rather than goals, focus on the activities rather than the outcome. On a personal level, do you set goals? Have you set goals? What do you think about this? You know, on a personal level, I'm much more aligned to your now more enlightened thinking. Um, I, I don't necessarily set personal goals. The way I think about it is, you're right, there's principles, you know, there's certain ways in which we operate. There are thought processes that I have found like serve me well. And then there's, you know, overall ideas that kind of sink into my brain that drive my thinking. For example, one of the things I've come to realize in building Twilio is that corporations are such a powerful force in our society. And they're a fictitious, like they're an invention of, of humanity, right? The idea that a piece of paper filed in the state of Delaware can somehow, you know, act like a human being and have contracts and bank accounts and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, that fiction that we've invented only exists because it serves society and makes society stronger, creates wealth, et cetera. And our job as corporations is to help strengthen society. And if we actually weaken society, then probably that social contract should get undone. And so that idea that Twilio exists to strengthen society and our communities around us, not just to make a profit, is an idea that has sunk in for me. And I devote you know, a, a good degree of time to thinking about how Twilio can play that role. And we've committed 1% of our equity to PowerTwilio.org, the branch of Twilio that is driving social change and social responsibility inside of Twilio. And so like, that's an example. Like, did I set a goal to say, you know, I'm personally going to do X, Y, or even or Twilio is going to do X, Y, or Z because that number is important to me? No. The idea is what's important to me. And sure, there might be goals set about how we're going to achieve that, but I actually think that ideas and principles that drive how you operate are more important for me personally than the particular of the goal, because you can lose sight of the big picture, the why, when you just have goals. And I personally am much more driven by why. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? And that goes to actually Twilio's goal setting system as well. So we have a system that maybe we could chat about another time. Please. <laughs> uh, it's, it's called the BPM system. And it's three parts, the big picture, the priorities, and the measures. And it's interesting that the measures are actually the least important part of that framework. You know, most company metrics are the most important part in goal setting and all that. In fact, most companies, you tie all these bonuses to those numbers. And at Twilio, we don't have bonuses. 
the metrics are the trailing actually part of that process. The first is the big picture. What are we here to accomplish over a multi-year timeframe? That's the beginning of that document. Second is priorities. Okay, what is it we need to accomplish in the next 12 to 18 months to further our achievement of this big picture? And priorities are not like quantitative measures. It's what I call commander's intent. What's the why behind what we need to accomplish over the next 12 to 18 months? And the third and honestly least important of that whole story is the metrics. The metrics, the measures that say, are we making progress? What are the mile markers along this road that tell us if we're making progress? Because you do need measures in an objective way of saying, are we succeeding in these priorities and ultimately towards this big picture or not? But you're not driven by the measures. You're driven by the big picture. The measures just tell you if you're making the progress you were hoping to make. Fantastic and really helpful to me personally. And I know a lot of listeners. Another great thing about your book, Ask Your Developer How to Harness the Power of Software Developers and Win in the 21st Century. You are donating all royalties. Tell me um, who you're supporting. Absolutely. Um, We are supporting some amazing organizations who are helping more people, especially from underrepresented backgrounds, enter the world of technology and enter the world of becoming software developers and become part of the technology industry, which has historically, as many people know, not been a very diverse industry. And so we're helping a bunch of organizations, Empower, which helps veterans enter the field of technology and learn to code, Year Up, which helps young adults, particularly of Black and Latinx backgrounds, to enter the technology field, Smash, which is an amazing program that helps high school students enter the STEM fields. And almost all of the Smash students are the first generation to go to college in their families. And Black Girls Code, who has a mission of training 1 million Black girls to become software developers by the year 2040. So amazing organizations and uh, the proceeds from this book are really helping more people enter this field and uh, to reap the economic benefits that this field offers. That's great. Jeff, for everyone who wants to go out and get more information about Ask Your Developer, where can we send them? AskYourDeveloper.com. We'll give you links to multiple places where you can buy the book and learn more about those organizations who are benefiting from the proceeds. I set you up so perfectly for that. Obviously available bookstores that are open, Amazon, barnesnoble.com, go to askyourdeveloper.com, follow Jeff on Twitter at J-E-F-F-I-E-L. Yep. <laughs> Jeff, really, you've got uh, so many things on your plate running the company you're running. We are honored to have you on the LeadX Leadership Show. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's been great to be here.